There is a passion that you feel in that song. You feel the the journey that uh, the writer is going through. You feel the pain. You feel the agony. You feel the sense of despair. And I would guess that there are moments in our lives where we all can, in a very visceral sense, understand that. It will be about different things for each of us because we're all different people and we have different experiences of life. But we all wrestle with the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our own lives and we struggle. And in the midst of all of that, we are asking God, what do we do? Where are you? I think there is this, this real, very real sense of that in the story we've just read from Mark's gospel. You have a man who has brought his son, the son whom he loves, to Jesus because this, this boy, probably now maybe a teenager, as he said, he's had this issue of being demon-possessed since he was a child. And he comes looking for Jesus to heal him because he doesn't know what else to do. It's an interesting situation that Jesus and, the, and Peter, James, and John walk into. We didn't read the, the beginning, the earlier verses of this, but earlier they, they are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They have this amazing vision of Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah. And, and it's an awesome experience. And now they come down into, back into reality. And they come and they find this, this chaotic argument taking place. Makes me think of when I was in sixth grade, you know, fifth, sixth grade, and the teacher gets called out of the room for a little while, and, and you know, she says to the class, look, just work on your assignments while I'm gone. And she leaves, and of course, that's exactly what we do, right? I don't know about your sixth grade, but that wasn't my sixth grade. As soon as she closes the door, there's, you know, paper wad fight and there's erasers and chalk flying all over and everybody's up and they're talking and, you know, there's all kinds of just chaos going on and it's having a great time and pretty soon the door opens and she steps in and everybody's just quiet. What's going on here? Nobody answers. Well, there's always a couple of squealers, you know, that want to point fingers at those of us who started it. But... You know, there is that sort of have that sense of Jesus walking into this scene of chaos. They're arguing, they're fighting, all this is going on. And Jesus says, what's going on? What are you guys fighting and arguing about? And, and there's just silence. And finally, this man runs over to Jesus and said, look, I brought my boy who's demon possessed to you. You weren't here. So the disciples tried. They couldn't do it. Jesus kind of shakes his head like, wow. Eventually, Jesus heals this boy, sets him free. I think the story, the hinge point of the story is that little brief conversation that Jesus has with his father. The father explains the situation to Jesus and he says to him, your disciples tried to do something they couldn't. So if you can help us. And Jesus looks at him and says, if I can? Wouldn't wouldn't you love to be able to hear the tone of voice 
that takes place in these stories because all we have are words and we all know, just, you know, just think about emails you receive of hard to know what exactly is the tone of voice of that. That's why we've created all these emojis. So we say hard things to people and then we put a little smiley face on the end of it so that they think it's all okay, right? And it's hard to tell the tone of voice. I think maybe Jesus is saying, he's just, he's just incredulous about it. Really? After everything you've seen, everything I've done, if I can, really? I, I think there is something going on underneath this man's statement when he says, if you can. I think he's really subtly asking a couple of questions. They're probably questions we ask. One of the questions subtly undermining underneath that, that statement, if you can, is the question, do you, are you able? Are you able? Do you have the power, Jesus, to be that's greater than this demon? Do you have the power to help my boy? Do you have the power to set him free? We ask similar questions. God, do you have the power to help me break this habit? Do you have the power to to heal this illness? Do you have the power to give me comfort in my grief? Do you have power to heal this broken relationship? Do you have power to meet this financial need? Do you have power to give me wisdom about the future? Do you have the ability to do this for me, to help me? One of the things I love about reading the Old Testament, and we read this one story this morning of two miracles... Two fantastic miracles is that we are reminded over and over again that God has the power. Period. There is nothing in this world over which God does not have power. There's a song we sang in the earlier services about the wonderful name of Jesus. And one of the phrases in that says, you have no rival. You have no equal. That's really what the Old Testament is trying to tell us about God. He has no rival. He is able. But I think there's a second question that maybe is even more more of a struggle for us. If we're followers of Jesus, there's probably a sense that we believe, at least with our minds, that God is able. He can do it. The more subtle question under this man's statement of if you can is asking not just are you able, but are you willing? Do you care? Am I and my boy important enough to you that you would do something for us? And I suspect that might be the question that hangs us up more than any other. We know God is able. We know God has the power. And yet, he doesn't. Why not? Maybe there's something wrong with us. There, there are, sometimes the church has said to, to, to us, the reason God isn't acting for you is, is probably sin in your life. It's your problem. Or it's because, you know what, God just, God is too busy with doing what he's doing. God's got too many things going on. I hear people say that. I think, what kind of a God do we worship, Right? The truth of the matter is God is willing. God does care. In this story, 
as the, as the argument unfolds, you get the sense that this boy is sort of pushed to the side. As the religious leaders and the, and the disciples argue theology about what they can and can't do. Because I, I think the argument, I suspect the argument is from the religious leaders to the disciples. You shouldn't be trying to heal this boy. He's cursed by God. I mean, good grief, he's filled with a demon. He must have done something. His parents must have done something. He's cursed by God. You leave this kind of people alone. God's not going to heal people like that. He's going to bring judgment on people like that. You shouldn't be praying for God to heal them. He doesn't care about people like that. And we know from John chapter 9, when the disciples and Jesus encounter a blind man, and the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, guys, you don't understand the kingdom. You don't understand how, how the world operates. And there is this inherent sense in their culture that if these kinds of things happen to you, then God's not going to help you. But the scriptures teach us again and again, and Jesus proves it in this moment, that he does care. He's the only one who cares about this boy. As they're all arguing and talking, he says, bring the boy to me. Let's get the boy back in the middle of our conversation here. Let's stop. This is not the time to argue about theology. This is the time to be compassionate toward this boy, as Jesus is. So here's the thing that we still wrestle with. If God is able and God is willing, why doesn't he? Why doesn't God act? I mean, that's the question that ultimately we're all asking. And the short answer to that question is, I don't know. I don't know. We want a formula. If we do this, God will do this. In many ways, that is the ultimate definition of of the pagan mindset. That we can manipulate God. We, we can trick God. We can make God do what we want him to do. We're in control. But we're not. And I don't know the answer to that question as to why God doesn't act. But I do think there are some things that help us understand a little bit about why God might not be acting. I think one of the key things that we miss, we forget... Is that we are so focused on the moment. And God is always thinking about the big picture. We have a little puppy who today turns seven months old. And a week ago Friday we had to take him to to the vet to have a, a little thing in his eye fixed. He had to have surgery in his eye. And so they, you know, they didn't want him rubbing his eye on the floor or scratching at it or pawing at it. And so they put one of those cones on his head. Oh, man, it's terrible. You know, he hates it. It, it, He's continually trying to get that thing off of his head. He's rubbing his head on the floor trying to do it. It was so pathetic because the first few days he had to learn how to really to walk again with that hanging down. He started up the steps one day and didn't realize it hung down low and he caught it on the bottom of the step and he went falling down a couple of steps. And outside he's got snow in it from, you know, getting into into the yard. I mean, it's just a mess. He's looking at us like, help me. What's wrong with you? You know, all the other dogs in the neighborhood are making fun of him. And it's just a whole bad situation, right? They're all laughing at him. I mean, 
And, and, you know, he doesn't understand. And I can't tell you how many times we have wanted to, we've almost taken it off of him just because we feel so bad for him. But we know we haven't because we know in the long run, it would be bad for him if we took it off. He might end up getting his eye infected and lose his sight in that eye if we did what he wanted us to do in the moment. But he can't understand that. He doesn't understand what we're doing. All he thinks is that we're confining him, we're being mean to him, we're not doing what he wants us to do. And you may probably remember times in your childhood when you felt the same way about your parents. But as we get older, we begin to see things from a different perspective. And I think there are some times, maybe many times, when what we want in the moment are not best, is not best for us. We can't see it. And so we keep complaining to God and we think God has abandoned us and he doesn't care. Maybe even that he's not able. And all the while, what God is doing or not doing is an act of grace to us. And ultimately, those acts of grace are intended to create within us a life of faith and trust. Because faith and trust are the means to which we develop intimacy with God. Out of which we experience joy and peace and life as we were created to experience We can never experience those things without being in relationship with God. And the closer we are to God, the more we experience them in the depths of our being. And the only way to get to that intimacy is to learn to trust God. And the only way to learn to trust God and have faith in God is to be provided with opportunities to have faith and to trust. If God did everything we wanted Every time we asked him, in every moment, we would never develop faith or trust. God would just become sort of this cosmic vending machine for us. We put in our dollar, push the button, he gives us what we want. But you can't have a relationship with the vending machine. And God wants relationship with us. Because he wants us to experience the fullness of life with him. So sometimes God doesn't do what we want him to do because he's trying to teach us to trust him and in that trust to experience life to its fullest with him. I'm convinced that the primary means of experiencing that, that, that life of faith with God is through prayer. It is being people who learn to pray in faith. When you get to the end of this story, Jesus' disciples ask Jesus, how come we couldn't do this? And he says to them, this kind can only come out with prayer. There's a lot of discussion of exactly what Jesus means. But I believe it is rooted in this sense of prayer is not just talking to God, but the sort of idea of prayer as enveloping all of our lives. It is this sense of desiring God, the sense of surrender to God, of being open to God, of coming to God with our needs and our burdens, of being honest with God, of developing relationship with God by spending time with him 
and by asking of God the desires of our hearts. It is prayer that, that, that exudes faith and trust. I was reading a couple of weeks ago in the, the old devotional classic, Streams in the Desert. And in one of the readings, the author was talking about how the instances when we pray about things over and over and over again, maybe for weeks or months or maybe even years. And he said, the greatest prayer of faith is those prayers that we've been praying for years and we pray it one more time. Because we believe. It's the evil one who says to us, stop praying about that. God's never going to answer that prayer. You might as well give up. You might as well stop. It's Jesus who says to us, and it's it's the writing of Scripture that says to us, keep on praying. Because every, every prayer of faith we make is a deeper step of faith. It is a deeper step of faith that we keep taking every time we want to give up and we keep praying anyway. And so Jesus says, anything is possible for those who believe. He does not say, I will do whatever you want if you believe. He says, there are no limits to the possibilities. And that's the calling on us. To have enough faith to keep praying for God to do what we want him to do. And that kind of faith, it's a growing faith. We never get to the end of faith and trust. There's always one more reason to trust God. One more call to have faith in God. I think that will, that's an eternal thing. I think that all throughout eternity, we will never stop learning how to trust God because we will never get to the end of knowing God. What a glorious thought that is. We never get to the end of knowing the greatness of God. And so this is the call on us as his people. To pray in faith, to pray confidently and boldly. And in those prayers of faith, to trust God for the answer. We live in that tension. The tension of praying with faith and then trusting God that whatever he does or doesn't do is good. And it's best and it's right. We believe. Help us to keep believing. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, we're going to pray together. I'm going to ask the elders and the pastors to come and stand here behind the altar rail. And then invite you, whoever would like, to come and give us the privilege of praying for you. Maybe the prayer on your heart this morning is about a healing. Maybe in your own life, a physical healing for you or for someone else. Maybe it is God's comfort in grief and pain. Maybe it's wrestling with things like depression. Maybe it's a relationship that that is fractured and broken and, and you're praying for God to heal. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe it's a habit that, that just is, is enslaving you. Maybe it's something about the future 
that you want to give to God and you're wrestling with that, whatever it is, we would love the privilege of praying for you and to be faith with you as we pray together. We also have anointing oil. If you would like that, we're happy to anoint you with oil. There's nothing magical about oil, but it does in the scriptures represent the presence of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that oil can just be a a, a tangible sense of the Holy Spirit with us as we pray. So I'm going to ask the elders and the pastors to come now. And if you would like for us to pray for you, please come. Kneel here. Stand, sit in one of the red chairs, we'll come to you. Just come and let us together pray prayers of faith.
privilege of coming to you in prayer. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for, uh, for the fact that you are trustworthy and faithful. And when we place our trust in you, it is always good. We pray, Father, not only for the needs that we represent and things that we prayed about today, but we pray for those outside of us. We think of the Centerville United Methodist Church. We ask that you would pour out your blessing upon this body of believers, that they would bear witness to you in their community and beyond. We pray for us as we attempt to start this new Celebrate Recovery group and pray that you would give wisdom to all who are working to make this happen and that it would, it would truly be a means of helping people to know you and to experience you in some of the difficult times of life. Father, we think of the world and our brothers and sisters throughout the world and today we pray for, for Pastor Emmanuel working with migrant workers and laborers from India and Pakistan who come to Kuwait. There have been some amazing things that have happened there, and we pray that they will continue. And may the church there and your people there be built up in the strength and the power of Christ. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your love and grace, that you are able, that you are willing, that you are good. And we place our trust in you. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.